We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly interview show where top chess players, authors, content creators, and accomplished amateurs discuss their careers and share stories and chess improvement tips. Perpetual Chess is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and we'd like to give special thanks to our presenting chess education sponsor, Chessable.com. For more information about the show, you can go to perpetualchesspod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We are joined by a return guest. He is the three-time British champion. He was the youngest British GM in history. He's been a top 50 player in the world, peak rating of 27-12, and he's also a popular Chess 24 commentator, the co-host of the Late Night Podcast with Askeeld Byrne, a podcast you guys should also be subscribed to. And he is here to discuss the candidates and the world championship drama and his upcoming Olympiad and his commentary and everything else. Let's welcome Grandmaster David Howell back to the show. Welcome, David. Uh, thanks, Ben. It's good to be back, and thanks for that intro. You yeah, made me far yeah more excited to have you. We've <laughs> added a few more lines to the resume since we talked in 2020. <laughs> so uh, you have. I don't know if I have. But, uh, sure. but I'm happy to have you. And David, I want to start with, of course, the stories of the chess world, uh, the, the world championship cycle and the candidates. Um, we are recording this on July... 
8th. And this should be out in a few days, but the way things are, maybe some news will break. Hopefully not. Um, but I wanted to start by discussing a person by the name of Magnus Carlson. Now, you know, obviously there's been endless talk uh, about uh, whether he will play the world championship. We'll discuss that briefly. I don't think you're going to break the news of whether he's going to play or not. Um, but first of all, there's been sort of new news that I'd like to run down. And first of all, listeners probably already heard, but Nepo did win the candidates. Ding Loren beat Nakamura to come in second. Um, so if there is a non-Magnus world championship, it would likely be Nepo and Ding Loren. If there's a Magnus world championship obviously it would be nepo but david let's start with the news regarding there have been sort of leaks where emil satovsky went on the chess.com broadcast emil satovsky being high up in fide and said basically there were constructive discussions with magnus there's been discussion about the format of the match uh possibly um some sets of matches were alluded to as i talked about with christoph selecki in a letter, but Magnus tweeted fake news. So we don't know what's going on. We don't know how to parse all this. They're hoping to have an announcement by July 20th, whether Magnus will play or not. Tarje Svensson thinks that's unlikely. Anyway, David, how do you parse all this news? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, first of all, that's a lot. And you did a great job of uh, rounding it up. Um, I guess I've been hearing one side of things. I'm not sure how much exactly I'm allowed to say, but I have had chats with Magnus directly about it. And I think he's undecided uh, at the moment as well, to be honest. I mean, uh, he's been kind of very honest, I think, uh, with the media up to the point where he's not 100% sure he'll play the match, of course. Um, Whether that's fair on the players who are there at the candidates, you know, kind of teasing them with the possibility he might step aside. um, I'm really not sure. But uh, either way, I think he's in two minds. And the chats he had with Fide... Partly they were negotiations, partly I think they were just uh, probably just kind of him expressing his feelings. And uh, Fide will know what he wants, uh, will know that he might be struggling for motivation in this match and whether they want to make things happen, that's... um, I'm not sure, again, whether it's their uh, burden or whether it's their kind of responsibility. But either way, I think Magnus is in two minds. I think the chess world would love a decision from him, but... It's going to be hard to get it by uh, July 20th. Okay. And uh, I think Nepomniachi, Ding, they'll all be waiting uh, with anticipation. I know they've all said mixed things about whether they expect him to play, but at the moment they should. But uh, it's, yeah, it's really touch and go at the moment. Okay. Well, I appreciate your candor. Listeners who, who don't know, David is friendly with Magnus. They both live in Norway. Magnus did a famous video where he's playing a bullet tournament on Leeches. David is in the room. <laughs> so probably does have some off the record conversations. And I yeah, not my finest moment, that one, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we just enjoyed the show. Um, so, but David, I will tell you that what you just said, I actually personally, um, I interpret that also like as Emil Sotovsky somewhat constructively because at least mm-hmm. he's on the fence, you know, <laughs> like yeah. um, there, there were times where it just sounded like it would be full stop. No, if he wasn't playing someone from the younger generation. Yeah. I mean, you're right there. I, there have been moments where he's hinted that to me as well. Um, again, I don't want to go into too much detail, reveal his, uh, I mean, the innermost workings of his mind, but yeah, there have been moments when he was quite firmly, uh, against it. I mean, understandably, it's such a stressful uh, match to prepare for. It, it's all consuming for months at a time. Um, so I understand why he's gone through doubts in the past. 
even before the match with Nepomniachtchi in 2021, we should uh, mention that's been discussed by his seconds um, in videos before. Um, there were doubts whether he really wanted to play that match in the first place, but yeah, I guess every world championship, uh, every world champion, sorry, has gone through that. Every challenger has probably gone through that. It's just so stressful. It's so demanding. It's just kind of maybe it's his way of psyching himself up for the match. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I can't imagine being at the pinnacle of world chess, dedicating the whole lives uh, to this one kind of big title. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I personally, I just hope he'll play. I mean, I want to see him. I want to see the rematch first of all. I want to see him kind of have this dynasty go down in history, as, uh, to keep going as long as he can. But I understand he's a point in his life now. He's early thirties. He's got other other stuff going on, and chess is not. I guess. I mean, at least the world championship title is not the be all and end all. He's still the strongest player in the world. He's still the most most consistent. Still one of the best players in history. So. Yeah, well said. And of course, I agree with you. I really want him to play. Uh, just a quick sort of mea culpa or explanation for listeners. In, in my recent, most recent Canada discussion with Christoph Zalecki, I'd said I don't mind a mixed format if they incorporate some action into the event. And I had said maybe this is under discussion. This was even before the recent news broke, but I got a lot of pushback on Twitter. There's a lot of people who say, hey, no no action chess in the World Championship. And then in the report that Magnus said was fake news, um, there was sort of a, I found it a tidy solution. It was three sets of classical games where you go to action tie breaks for those sets, but only if it's tied. So the scoring itself is not impacted by action games unless there's a tie at that point. Um, David, you know, whether there's any merit to these reports or not, what do you think of uh, the possibility of an uh, increased use of faster time controls in classical world championships? Yeah, um, mixed feelings. I mean, like you, I wouldn't mind in a, in some ways. I mean, the spectacle will still be amazing. Um, it'll be maybe even better publicity for chess um, from kind of, uh, for the chess community, at, at least from kind of other media sources, I mean, if a tournament, if uh, if kind of rapid play speed chess comes into effect, then the World Championship might be done within ten days, two weeks, and maybe that's uh, a less stressful process for everyone, more entertaining for the media. But at the same time, I don't know. I I do think classical chess, the long form, is still the purest and best way to decide the uh, kind of the number one player in the world. So. Um, I'm, I think I'm just reluctant to go down that slippery slope. If you make it quicker now, then maybe in 20 years, it'll be just blitz chess and yeah. <laughs> rapid chess and uh, purely. And I'm not sure that's what I want to see. Yeah. And that's what a lot of people said on Twitter. Uh, some people also rightfully raised the point that if they change the format now, there hasn't been a cycle for that format. So it might be a bit unfair um, I'm just I'm just not a purist. I just feel like chess world championship history is littered with unfairness. So yeah. um, we're, we're <laughs> dealing true. with we're dealing with imperfect solutions. But I basically I can't I can't dispute their arguments on merit. You know, <laughs> it's more based on feeling. Um, yeah, I mean, if if the debate is a kind of a world championship match with Magnus and Nepomniachtchi, um, including some speed games or just a classical match, but without Magnus, I think. Sure, yeah, just would choose, that, uh, that's, Magnus. that's where I came down as well. But I understand people who say, look, you can't break the rules for anyone. And obviously the past is prologue. So they could say, look, like, you know, Kasparov didn't play Shirov, but the, that was that was then. Let's let's move forward, you know. Um, 
So yeah, anyway, no answer, like you say. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, I think it's good to cover the news. And since you know, Magnus, it's great to get your perspective, but we don't need to endlessly sort of, you know, pontificate about our own projections. Now, one question I did have um, is obviously, you know, both of us derive income from the Play Magnus group. Um, you know, the the chess climate has changed. Do you think Magnus might feel any sort of external pressure to play based on like, it would obviously be better for his company if he defends his world title? Yeah, I mean, that's the great thing about Magnus, but also the frustrating thing about Magnus is that he won't be affected at all by uh, external factors, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, um, now being part of the Play Magnus group, I, maybe I'm slightly biased. Um, I think it will be great for the company if he continues, but in the end, he's just got to do what's best for him. And uh, everyone involved with uh, Chess will understand, everyone involved with the company will understand, and we'd evolve, we'd... Uh, I'm sure we'd still love working in chess. I don't think we'd hold it against him personally. So yeah, I don't think it should be a consideration in his mind, and it definitely isn't. Uh, okay, I feel. That, that's good to know as well. Yeah, and he's not quitting chess. I mean, obviously, we would prefer that. That's not yeah, that's not I on the table. I can confirm he's too in love uh, with chess. He's too deep down yeah. that hole to ever quit. But it's just, I think, the stress of uh, the World Championship match. It's, I mean, it's not just the two three weeks of playing. It's months and months of preparation, months and months of media scrutiny. It's everything, yeah. especially in a country like Norway where people follow him around the streets. I mean, he's like one of the biggest celebrities in the country. It's a lot of pressure. Wow. And, uh, I think, yeah, it can be overwhelming. And in one of their broadcasts, Jan Gustafsson and Judith Polgar had come to the possibility. They said, let's move it to three years. Boom, we solved it. If we, if we move it to a three-year cycle so that it's a smaller percentage of his life. And obviously, as a chess fan, I love it. But I do get that um, it seems soon. You know, I feel like we just did the world championship. Now, obviously, COVID impacts the cycle. But anyway, do you think that would make a difference to Magnus if they slowed the cycle down? Yeah, um, that's interesting. I've never really thought of thought of it that way. Um, I, I'm not sure it would work, to be honest, because in sport in general now, we want instant gratification. Yeah. We want the title fights. We want the big matches every, every few months, every year. But um, maybe for him, it would sound more impressive. You know, he'd been world champion for longer if the <laughs> breaks between each match uh, is longer as well. I mean, that's one possible solution. I just don't think it will ever... Um, go back to those longer breaks between matches, unfortunately. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah, nice idea, but uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, not, uh, not a huge game changer. In, implementable. In yeah. Uh, All right. And we've got one more Magnus-related question, and then we got to get to the candidates. This one is from Patreon supporter of the podcast, Igor Feinstein. And he says, I've watched many times the YouTube video where you test Magnus's memory of famous games, and I'm continuously amazed that he could remember the games between which players, even the years before you even put all the pieces on the board. And listeners, this is a must-see video if you haven't seen it. It's got a lot of views, so you might have, but a link, as always, in the show description if you want to check it out. To finish Igor's question, he says, is it your sense that other top players have roughly equally good memory, or is Magnus in a class of his own? And if so, do you think his memory is the key why he is the best player in the world and maybe ever? Ooh, great question. Um, first of all, I think, yes, he's in a class of his own. Um, I've talked to many great players who have uh, just a fantastic memory, uh, phenomenal memory, but somehow Magnus just has this extra, uh, extra level. I mean, it's not just the fact he'll remember a game, he'll remember some trivia about it, some random detail. I mean, 
of course, he's well-read, he's well-educated in chess, but uh, to retain that amount of information is incredible. And for those who have seen the video, I mean, the speed with which he came up with some of the answers, uh, I just didn't expect it. I was a bit speechless. Yeah, you were, you were surprised. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there's and, one uh, where he's describing the game next to him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that was from a tournament that we both played in 2002, and I could barely remember the game I played against him, let alone right. what was happening on the board next door and the moves, the position. And, I mean, even from that video alone, the memory test, we had to, because there were so many impressive moments, we had to cut a few. And, uh, I mean, there were some games he was getting uh, from over 100 years ago. I mean, it's just... It's crazy, um, but it also transfers over to um, to other spheres, which is really frustrating. I mean, I do some pub quizzes with Magnus occasionally, and um, some of the knowledge and trivia there is impressive. Music quizzes, he always seems to know some random fact about a band that nobody's heard of from the 1970s. So it's definitely, I think, a, a special type of memory, and uh, it, it clearly helps him with the chess. I can't remember in the the bullet match that I alluded to earlier, where he's streaming with you and Askiot and a couple other friends. But when uh, when in the club by Fifty Cent came on, I can't remember if it was him who knew that it was produced by Doctor Dre or someone else. But anyway, yeah, it that's was probably him. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. Uh, so that's interesting about the, the worldly knowledge. So does he, obviously, his, as you mentioned, he's known as a chess bibliophile, um, you know, knows his chess history cold, no, beyond just the positions. But is he spending a lot of time reading for, for common interest, do you think? Yeah, I mean, he knows a lot that's going on in the world right now. I mean, uh, it was really interesting. I, uh, I mean, just... I try to avoid talking about politics in general with friends, people I like, just because I found it's it's not so healthy. But um, somehow some political issues came up uh, about okay this war that's going on, and, um, and he had really interesting views that he clearly read up on, and he's um, I mean that he clearly put a lot of thought into. So um, yeah, I mean he likes to keep up to date. It's definitely not a case where he's just kind of head in a chess book all the time or got chess base open on his computer all the time. It's definitely um, I mean, it's, I think it's just a curious mind that wants ever more knowledge. Uh, so, Well, you may, you may try to avoid politics, David, but someone in the Twitter replies suggested you for a prime minister of uh, <laughs> Great Britain. <laughs> are, are you, are you uh, available? Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm always open to office. Uh, <laughs> if anyone right. wants to nominate. Or, um, actually, I was, uh, I was very tempted recently. I mean, I'm terrible with social media. Uh, I never really know what to say, but... I was very tempted to post a picture from when Boris Johnson came to visit the London Chess Classic in 2014, I think. And it was my job to kind of show him around. And he was very charming, but we got a photo together and I was tempted to put that now on uh, social media. <laughs> now that he stepped down saying right. kind of um, should have stuck to chess. The PM title is temporary, but the GM title is permanent. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. I didn't know whether that would uh, go down too well. You could just <laughs> post it as a caption contest and <laughs> let, let's crowdsource it. <laughs> yeah, good idea. Maybe I'll do that. <laughs> Excellent. All right, well, we got to get to the candidates, David. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then let's hear about the dominance of Nepo. I've been playing Blitz a little bit better lately, so I figured I'd check out what's going on with my game from our friends at aimchess.com. And what I discovered is I'm not blundering as much, so that's good news. My openings continue to be reasonably strong, especially with black. Um, I still have things to improve, still trying to get better at 
playing faster, especially in blitz, and converting advantages and even resourcefulness. But the good thing is that aim chest shows you positions where you didn't um, play to your full strength and you're able to either practice against the computer or learn from it, uh, practice specific openings, tactics that you missed, etc. You can do all this stuff on aimchest.com. So please use the link in the show description to check it out. And if you decide to subscribe, use the link or the code perpetual30 on aimchest.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And we are back. And as promised, we are going to discuss the FIDE candidates. Uh, So, David, someday bouncing your grandchildren on your lap, telling them about the 2022 FIDE candidate. These are your future grandchildren. Um, what will you tell them first? What struck you about this tournament? Oh, that's a very good question. I mean, I guess it's got to be the, um, I mean, just kind of almost, I mean, I want to say impressive, but that sounds <laughs> uh, that sounds like an understatement, but just Nepomniachtchi's performance, essentially, just because um, nobody really seemed to tip him as the favorite. I always had a sneaky feeling he'd do pretty well, but um, he just ran away with it. And he was calm, he was composed, it was all about experience. Um, it was all about kind of having this great team around him to keep him mentally stable with. Um, yeah, he, he deserves it. Um, other subplots, I guess, in the candidates would be Nakamura. Um, just what a player. Um, if he'd come second. Oh, that, could, that would have been nice, yeah. I mean, no offense to Ding, I love Ding, but, but yeah, just as a, as a chess fan, that would have been fun. Exactly. I mean, if he'd come second, I'm not sure we'd be having the conversation about Magnus uh, <laughs> defending the title or not. But uh, yeah, I mean, Nakamura just phenomenal. I mean, how how he can combine the Twitch streaming with uh, with playing at such a high level again is is just incredible. Um, so unexpected. I don't think anyone um, would have seen him do so well. Um, there are questions about the preparation, the kind of approach by players like Ding arriving a bit late, being jet lagged, Faruja barely playing for six months and then being a bit rusty at the beginning. Um, Rajabov did great. I mean, there's the kind of a storyline for every player. Um, maybe Duda and Report disappointing, but the first time they'll be back. Um, yeah, Fabiano I mean, it just felt like yeah. yeah, Fabiano. I mean, it was a tale of two halves, right, for him. Yeah, uh, he played great in the first half, fell apart in the second. Um, and actually, that was one that maybe I didn't predict very well the tournament, but I did predict somehow Fabiano that it would. I mean, he takes risks so much in every single game, and it can backfire. So um, yeah, it was just a fascinating event. Every game had so much content within it. Uh, every player was pushing and. Okay, a couple of quick draws here and there by Nepo towards the end because it suited him. But apart from that, it was just so fun to watch. Uh, yeah, I mean, highest score, of course, uh, in the history of this format for Nepo. Um, one thing, following up on Nakamura and Ding, I know you were broadcasting the final round. Um, what did you think of that game? I'm, the, the fact that Ding won on demand. 
Yeah, um, I mean, that was a huge kind of Herculean effort by Ding uh, because uh, I joined the commentary with Judith Polgar, Jan Gustafsson from the beginning. Um, I think after maybe around two, two and a half hours, um, I had to go and do something else. And we made predictions just beforehand. We all said it's definitely going to be a draw. Position was too simplified. Queens are off. Nakamura is so good at those types of positions. And uh, I had some stuff to do. I turned on the computer again like an hour later and suddenly ding, he already started playing, uh, outplaying Nakamura. And uh, I mean, that just shows if Ding does get a chance, a shot at the world title when he's fully warmed up, like he was in the second half of that event. I mean, he can do it. He can definitely um, hang with the Magnuses, the Yanda Pomnishis. But uh, heartbreaking for Nakamura, of course. I was, yeah, mixed feelings about that result. But uh, hats off to Ding. Yeah, I mean, from my 2100 perspective, I was surprised that, that Naka didn't hold that position. Um, I did watch his recap video. I don't know if you got a chance to see it. I mean, he he looked at some very concrete things that prevented him from making what appeared to be like simplifying moves. There was this recurring theme of uh, him being able to trade rooks by going rook d8 in, in a certain position um, where he was a little bit uh, uh, misevaluated a position, but in his recap, he seemed quite uppy. I mean, he was happy with his performance um, overall. I was a little surprised because, again, with the the subplot of second place, it seemed so crucial. But then again, he and Fabiano have both been saying they think Magnus is going to play, so maybe that's related. Yeah, it's funny. I've um, I watched all of the roundup videos from Nakamura, apart from the last one. So oh, okay. <laughs> you're ahead of me yeah. there. But uh, yeah, you're right. I mean. If it turns out that Magnus doesn't defend his title, Nakamura is going to be kicking himself. I mean, yeah. I, I do think that in his mind, he was maybe too focused on the result. Um, it did kind of show from his play. There were a couple of moments, like you said, where he could have maybe gone more directly for the draw, but maybe seeing ghosts. And I think it was just kind of psyching himself out just as much as anything in the middle stage when he was one or two accurate moves away from complete equality. Um I mean, I've been there myself so many times. You have, you're so close to your goal. You just need a draw and something freaks you out, whether it's a concrete variation, like you said there, that Nakamura kind of uh, saw or whether it's kind of a, a ghost that doesn't really exist. It's, there's always something. Um, drawing against the top players in the world is much more difficult than it sounds uh, or than it, than it looks. Yeah, and that gets to, I, I felt the tension more than usual, I felt like, even for the candidates in this one. And again, I am Christoph Selecki, and I discussed Kramnik's criticism of the quality of play. Um, did, did, did that strike you? Did you feel like this was typical candidates' quality? Um, it felt different in a way. Um, I mean, I followed, I think, all the candidates very seriously for years. I mean, especially since 2013. But... Um, Maybe, yeah. I mean, I kind of understand the point that maybe the quality of the games was slightly less consistent. Right. Um, but it was just because everyone in the field is so maximalist, so ambitious. I mean, it, I think in terms of style of player, it's different from what we've had in uh, a long, long time. So I'm not disappointed at all by the games. Um, I disagree with Kramnik that um, you know the players aren't uh, necessarily as strong or as uh, consistent, as focused as they were back in the day. Um, I agree with some of Kramnik's other points, uh, uh, but yeah, in general, I, I can't complain about the candidates here at all. Um, yeah, I, I mean, when I was following tournaments back in, uh, I mean, I was a second for one of the players in 2016. I, uh, 
I mean, there were one, one move blunders there as well. So uh, yeah. I think, like you said, it's the tension and they feel it. The players, especially in the early rounds, Rapport over pushing against Nepo, uh, Ferrugia kind of self-destructing in a couple of games. It's just the tension. It would, uh, it's, yeah. we can't blame even, the strength of the player. Even Fabiano taking a draw in round two, uh, like with, with some play left in the position. Um, yeah. And, and for listeners, uh, in, in our first interview, David, you were on Svidler's team, right? For 2016? Yes. Yeah, right. yeah, we discussed that a bit in our first interview. Definitely recommend <laughs> listeners get the full David Howell backstory uh, from, from that interview. Those um, were the glory days, uh, <laughs> pre-2020. <laughs> exactly, although it was amidst COVID. There's some COVID talk in there, which we'll try to avoid this time around. Mm-hmm. Um so on the candidates, Tom Mullally on Twitter asked, he said, as a player, does David see anything in Nepo's play that has him thinking he'd do better this time around if Magnus were to defend? Um, ooh, that's a good question as well. Um, I'm, it's difficult to say about the play because it's quite a small sample size. Uh, Nepo did play a few tournaments before the candidates. Um, he played in the World Rapid and Blitz last year, and I thought he was very impressive there. Firstly, his openings are still phenomenal. Um, that's clearly a yeah. remnant of the 2021 preparation. Um, you would, I guess, in general say that he seems more mentally stable in this candidates than he seemed during the World Championship last year. But yeah, whether, whether that would translate into kind of um, being able to kind of maintain an equilibrium if he lost one game in, a, in the next World Championship, that's hard to say. Um, I mean, I, I still think it could have been so much closer if just game six in the 2021 World Championship match had gone slightly differently with one different move. And I think if Nepo had drawn that game or even won uh, game six of the World Championship match last year, we would have seen a completely different match. So I think it's just small margins. And if he gets a chance to play Magnus, I think it will be so much closer this time. I still think Magnus would be a heavy favorite, but uh, yeah, Nepo Miyashi, um yeah. yeah, I mean, he's, he seems to have leveled up. Uh, it's just yeah. to what extent that's that's unclear at the moment. Yeah, I mean, Kasparov, like you, highlighted the the quality of his prep from the World Championship. Uh, and yeah, and yeah, I mean, yeah. he debunked one narrative. I mean, there's been the long-term narrative that he's sort of like a momentum player, which I guess he didn't debunk because he just maintained the momentum throughout. <laughs> but he did mo- debunk the narrative that like he fades in the second half. Like that, that definitely didn't happen. So um, he might be doing some some psychological work and yeah i mean i i see a few people online sort of saying like you know he was just gifted the games but in my mind you can't you can't um take away the performance he had especially considering all the volatility of the other participants who showed the pressure that he handled and others didn't yeah exactly and i think the the one big difference between his candidates win in uh 2020 21 uh, and this time is even though he won the the first, I mean, his first victory in the candidates, he won that one with a round to spare as well, but um, that tournament was split into halves. Both halves, he lost the final game because he'd kind of taken his eye off the ball, maybe, or you can argue that he was too relaxed uh, um, after winning um, the first candidates. But this time, even when it was clear he was going to win, didn't take his eye off the ball, didn't blunder, didn't give his opponent a sing- uh, his opponents a single chance. So, um, you're right. He, that's one way to debunk uh, yeah. uh, any doubts, just yeah. to knuckle down. And uh, he seems to have done that. Yeah. Although there are are always moments. I did want to clarify something again from my conversation with Christoph Zalecki when when he had been talking about Fabiano's second 
game in the candidates with Nepo, where Fabiano did have a winning line. I misinterpreted and thought he was talking about this first uh, game against Nepo. And obviously both of those games turned out to be huge, but that was the one point in the second half of the tournament. I mean, Fabiano, the game kind of slipped through his fingers. Um, he caught him in some some nice prep. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was the one point where we really could have had a dogfight. Yeah, it's, again, small margins, right? And one move from Fabiano, I think he spent a huge amount of time in that second game. So he sensed the moment that there was a win there, but he just couldn't find it. It was maybe a tricky variation, but um, that's, I guess, what decides world champions, world championship challenges uh, from the rest. And also, I should mention, Nipponishi's game against Hikaru, um, the first one, not the second kind of non-game, but um, that one, if Hikaru had found maybe... Well, not a straightforward line, but quite a convincing move that should have been part of his uh, part of his vision. Then, uh, yeah, if he'd won that one, Nippon Nishi, would he have recovered? Uh, who knows? So, yeah, it's yeah. just one move here or there. That's that's how right. good these guys are. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he went undefeated, uh, like he never had to recover from a loss. So, yeah. in that in that sense, we don't we don't know. Did you know? Did he make progress on that front? But anyway, again, don't like incredible performance by Nepo. I don't mean to like denigrate it in, in any way. Uh, last, last thing on the candidates from me, at least David is, uh, you know, obviously we're mostly mortals listening to this podcast. Um, any chess lessons we can learn from, from what happened? Was there anything that surprised you in terms of openings? Like what, what can we learn from the actual chess? Ooh, again, very good question. Um, I mean, there was so many interesting moments I felt in the openings, um, I mean, while we're on the topic of, topic of Nepo, um, I mean, just the way he's kind of built this kind of uh, almost indestructible opening repertoire with black, that's so impressive. Um, I know a lot of players of all levels, beginner level, club player, tournament player, they're unhappy with a certain opening here or there, so they switch, they jump about, they're scared of their opponent's preparation, but Nepomnishi, he's just... Okay, it's taken a lot of work. He's got a lot of uh, coaches around him and everything, which is a bonus, but he's just built this repertoire. He's sticking to it. And two of his most vital wins against Rapport as black and against Ferruja as black in the Petrov defense, they came because his opponents were overpressing because they simply couldn't find a hole in his repertoire. So I think that's a tip for everyone and one that I'm maybe going to try uh, going forward is just rather than hopping about with openings, rather than relying just on the surprise factor just sometimes just building this repertoire fixing all the holes in it i know it's a very classical approach but um it's fallen out of fashion and he seems to have uh, mastered that now um just the way he's been playing um with this set opening repertoire it's especially with black that's uh, yeah i feel like naka and ding their their repertoires aren't as broad as some of the top players as well and there, yeah, there you true. have three of the top finishers Yes, uh, good point, actually. Uh, exactly. Ding, he's been playing the same thing for the last 10 years, uh, or most of the last decade, likewise Nakamura, and they nearly never lose, so that might be the way, especially with black. With white, you can freestyle maybe slightly bit more, uh, try and pinpoint your opponent's weaknesses, but uh, like Nepo did against Duda uh, in the in the candidates, but in general, yeah. yeah was I think 1G3, right? Yeah, uh, 9 of 3 and 9G3, I think, but yeah, yeah it's yeah. Uh, okay. yes, uh, similar. Uh, and uh, just playing a game, essentially. But yeah, in general, I think that's that's the way forward these days. There's too much opening material out there. Nobody has the time to learn it all. So why not focus on one 
uh, you becoming make a me specialist. Feel better, David, because I certainly feel that way. Um, yeah. <laughs> me too. Don't worry. And, and if yeah. if Nepo were to play Magnus, you know, there's been some discussion of like, you know, Nepo switched to this solid repertoire, which goes against his roots of being this like swashbuckling attacker. So, do you think that's the proper, especially with Black? Is that better than him like trotting out the Nidorf? Or, I mean, the Nidorf didn't do well in the candidates. So I don't, yeah, it's been a long time since uh, the, the Nidorf's done well at the top level, actually. Um, I mean, even players like Vashay Legrav, uh, Nepalneshi now, Anish Giri, they're kind of veering away from the Nidorf. Um, yeah, I think. I mean, it's, this is only at the very top levels where everyone is so good and everyone's so well prepared. But I think until the key moment in the tournament reveals itself, so a must-win situation or when you know what results you need or if you're kind of facing a, an opponent who's maybe out of form, until that moment, I think staying solid at the top level is maybe the way to go. Maybe that's where players like Alareza Farouche went wrong, just fighting from game one, spending all his energy. Like maybe a couple of quick draws in the early stage uh, would have helped him a lot uh, just to get into the into the tournament but um, yeah it seems to be a mark of uh, a lot of champions as well you look back at Kramnik himself playing the Berlin Petrov for a long time in his career um, you look at players with longevity like Gelfand who's been playing solid stuff um, some Sicilians here and there but Petrov's as well um, yeah maybe that's one area that uh, is nice to have you're depressing me <laughs> yeah i mean the, i say this with mixed feelings myself i mean for the club player they probably want uh, for the average kind of uh, player including myself these days we want something more exciting right but yeah. <laughs> if it's if you're focused all about the results i should say if results are the only thing that's driving you then maybe solidity is good as black but yeah and if and, not then you can have a bit of fun <laughs> yeah and at the club level there's plenty of room for for fighting chess no exactly. need to play the petrov listeners <laughs> exactly but even in the petrov you sometimes get a fight <laughs> yeah no it's true yeah. and it's a good opening obviously um, yeah. <laughs> all right well i think we've got the candidates covered david any final thoughts mm. before we um move on um i just want to yeah maybe just the fact that i think Despite the disappointing result, Alariza Farouja will have learned so much. He will have learned uh, a lot in terms of opening approach. Uh, he should be playing more in the build-up to the event and also not playing bullet chess until 6 a.m. I think uh, yeah, that's the final yeah. time he'll ever do that. Uh, yeah, although he knew at the time. You know, when you're in one of those frenzies, it's not like you you think you're making a good decision, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. But, uh, yeah. I hope he tells his uh, dad or one of his uh, team to just kind of you know, block all the accounts during the tournament, just <laughs> yeah. looking on. Uh, yeah, that, that's that's a good point. And and he did say, or someone from his team said in an interview that he didn't get a lot of invites because, you know, obviously he has come under a lot of criticism for not playing prior to the candidates. But I don't know. I mean, to me, it seems like if Ali Reza wants to play a chess tournament, he can he can find a chess tournament to play. Do you think it's a valid excuse? Like, obviously, he had the the dust up about uh, Vaikanze and turned down an invitation there. But he said beyond that, there weren't many opportunities to play. Does that ring true to you? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to kind of question the honesty of uh, other chess players. But yeah, I mean, I, I know, I think at least a few tournaments that invited him along. And for some reason or other, he decided not to play. Um, I mean, I'm sure he played lots of training matches with his coaches, with his teams, but that's different, right? There's, no, there's less intensity, there's... Um, it's not kind of you don't get match fit by playing friendly matches so yeah um, yeah he could definitely have played I mean he, he there were plenty of open tournaments you don't necessarily need to um, yeah. get invites to and 
Yeah, that's more what I meant. To be clear, I'm not calling them dishonest. Yeah. I just meant yeah, like, yeah. it's Faruja. If, if he calls you and says he wants to play in your tournament, you're, you're exactly. going to say, come on down, even though, even though you're going to crush us. <laughs> yeah, tournament organizers would be begging for him <laughs> yeah, to play. Sure. Exactly. All right. So, well, David, it's time to get to you. So we're going to take one more break, and then we got to get to your chess and your broadcasting. Sound good? Sounds good. Let's do it. Okay. We'll be right back. Perpetual Chess is proud to be brought to you in part by Chessable.com, the leading chess education platform. Chessable, of course, uses its proprietary move trainer technology, which has space repetition to help you learn opening sequences, tactical patterns, basic end games, all of which it will quiz you on repeatedly until you have it down cold. They have courses both for free and for purchase. One of their newest includes the Beginner's 1D4 Repertoire by popular and entertaining YouTube commentator and streamer. I am Andres Toth. So if you're just looking to get your feet wet in an opening, it is a great uh, intro. And of course, they also have intermediate classics like Endgame Strategy and tons of advanced opening courses that you can check out for free or for purchase at chessable.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. And we are back. So again, recording July 8th, David, you're heading to the Olympiad. Uh, how, how's your game shaping up? How are you feeling? I mean, you seem so busy. Are you finding time to sort of feel like you're rounding into shape? Oh, no blow, Ben. I mean, <laughs> that one is... Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm struggling, I must admit, to kind of get my life balanced and find the time to properly sit down and study like I used to. Um, I guess when I was... Yeah, when I was a full-time player... I would have uh, spent weeks, months preparing for such a big tournament. Olympiads always are the highlight, but uh, this time I've been doing work. I've kind of planned what openings I'm going to play uh, here and there. And apart from that, though, it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, I haven't got as much match practice as I'd, uh, I'd have liked. Um, I was planning to play a tournament or two beforehand, but we'll see. Hopefully the freshness will uh, <laughs> um, be helpful. I mean, the Olympiad this year is going to be an incredible experience just in India, so much passion going on there. Uh, my main goal is to just stay healthy um, and take it game by game. So, yeah, oh, we'll see. Got the, uh, you got the sports talk down game by I game. Know. <laughs> I know. I mean, yeah, that's all I've got at the moment. I don't have the chess. Uh, I don't have the <laughs> practical chess side nailed down. So I've got all the mottos in my head. <laughs> well, you're very modest, but most of us would uh, would love to have your, your chess problems. Um, so have there been any training sessions uh, with your team? Um, with the England team, no. Um, I guess England, they're kind of an enigma in some ways. Uh, we we just we very rarely meet up as a team. We very rarely train together as a team. Where I mean, when we get together at the tournaments, things seem to go pretty well. We all get on, I should mention, uh, very nicely. But yeah, it's it's maybe different to some countries. I've seen photos, videos on social media. The Indian team have been locked in into training camps for oh, <laughs> for yeah. weeks. <laughs> but uh yeah we'll see i mean that's one way to approach things um and maybe the better more professional way to approach things but 
Um, unfortunately, not. No, I mean, my training camps have uh, been me with a laptop and a book. That's okay. <laughs> the extent what, what, so far. What book? <laughs> Ooh, um, I'm not sure I should say opening books. Um, okay. I don't want to reveal what openings I'm going to play, but okay. um, yeah, uh, by a few different publishers, quality okay. chess. Uh, Interesting. But you, and actually, I think someone on Twitter asked, um, so do you, they asked, do players of your stature, super GMs, do you still get excited about a new chess book? Is there a book that would come out to be like, I got to get that? Yes. Um, I probably don't get as excited as I used to when I was young, but if there's an opening book that's, on a topic that I really want to find out more about or that I've been studying lately, then, uh, then yeah, I'm going to be ordering it as quickly as possible. There are also a few authors um, out there uh, of opening books that, yeah, uh, opening books especially at least, that I'll, uh, I'll order instantly. Um, Could you yeah, say I've, those without revealing too much about you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Boris Averick. Of course, um, yeah. Kyle Marin, you know, the usual uh, okay. suspects. Uh, but even, I mean, my countrymen, I should shout out, Gawain Jones has put out some great books lately. Um, Chessable courses as well. Yeah, Chessable courses as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm studying those in order to yeah, support him, but uh, also uh, to learn more about areas that I'm, I'm maybe less knowledgeable about. Um, but yeah, even non-opening chess books. I mean, Nigel Short's book last year, I think as soon as I heard about it, I ordered it. Michael Adams' book. Um, I mean, I could name hundreds of authors, but this is, uh, yeah, uh, I'm still very keen. And yeah, in not in this room, but uh, in another room, I have uh, a whole bunch of chess books that I've barely opened yet that I need really need to get to. Yeah, so, well, uh, we can we can all relate to that to that. And is that your sense amongst your 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 peers that they also? I mean, I feel like obviously there's a rich legacy with that in chess, but there's been a lot of discussion of chess moving to digital formats. Do you still? have discussion of chess books amongst your peers? Yeah, um, from time to time. I mean, for example, going back to Magnus, um, whenever I'm around at his flat, there's always a new chess book lying around somewhere. And uh, the difference between me and him is that he actually seems to have read his books. Uh, wow. So, uh, yeah, I mean, from time to time, we talk about the latest books or, um, you know, we critique them or we discuss certain ideas from them. But, um, I mean, you mentioned the digital side of things Nowadays, I think more conversations are dominated by Chessable, for example. Um, the latest courses that are out there, I mean, the quality is incredible. Uh, yeah. I was always a bit skeptical at first, I must say, of some of these digital platforms, these video courses. I thought just maybe there'll be more of an eye on the production value rather than the actual chess itself. But that's never been the case with Chessable and uh, and some of the other sites out there nowadays. It's, I mean, the quality control is uh, extremely high and... These days, uh, I, I mean, during the pandemic, the early days, I would have Netflix on in the background while I'd be doing some work. These days, I have chessable videos on in the background while I'm doing okay. some work, um, just because I, I don't know, I find a lot sinks in. So uh. Yeah. And and speaking of which, David, at some point, Chessable tweeted a picture of you and a certain Magnus Carlsen potentially working <laughs> on a course. What, what can you say about that? Yeah, I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to say at the moment. Um, it was... Uh, it's a passion project from myself and Magnus. We've been uh, having this one idea, I think, for the last year that we really wanted to get out there. Um, and we've had in-jokes about it. But I think because Magnus and myself, we're, we're not tech savvy. We're not maybe the most organized of uh, individuals. So um, it eventually got to a stage a few weeks ago when I was like, okay, we just have to do this. Uh, Magnus was going away for three months playing tournaments back to back. So I said, okay, let's do it now. 
um, drop everything. And he was like, okay, let's do it. Uh, so that surprised me. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, it's as anyone who's seen the tweet by Chessball will have seen, um, the working title is Grind Like a Grandmaster. And it's all about kind of squeezing out these, um, these the points, the wins from maybe drawish positions. For example, Magnus's match in game six against Nepomnishi. Right, yeah. Um, and of course, those who followed my games or followed my commentary know that I loved these kind of long grinds, these long battles where it's all about tiny margins. It's all about the psychology, actually. And uh, we discussed that a lot. So I think it's one for the practical player. And anyone who loves hearing stories from a world champion or some from myself, then uh, hopefully that's the course for them. It's less about the opening kind of nuances, more about the psychological, practical Man, that aspects. sounds absolutely incredible. I hope you can <laughs> harangue him again when, he, when he's done traveling. <laughs> I'll, try. I'll try. Excellent. Um, and just to, to tie up the Olympiad, we should mention your team, of course, is uh, is Michael Adams, Gawain Jones, Luke McShane, and then is, uh, is Ravi Haria the alternate? Yeah, that's right. So Ravi, he's England's newest grandmaster. He's by English standards, he's pretty young. Uh, he's in his early twenties. By Indian standards, that's uh, you know right. long he's past a senior it, citizen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all these twelve-year-old grandmasters now. But uh, yeah, it's a strong team. It's the team that we had at last year's European Team Championship as well. And um, just apart from Ravi Harrier, um, the the other four that you mentioned. I mean, Adams, Jones, McShane, and myself. We were kind of the the players when we won silver medals at the World Team Championship, bronze at the Europeans. So. I'm optimistic. It feels like we're already getting towards our last hurrah. We're all getting oh, a bit man. older. So we need to, you know, score some Olympiad medals before Russia and China come back. I think that's right. The yeah. Yeah. And France isn't bringing and, uh, MVL or Ali Reza. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm really looking forward to that tournament. Is it? Uh, I mean, most, most top players seem to hold that, hold the Olympiad close to their hearts. Do you feel that way as well, David? Yeah, um, I think that was the first moment that I knew I'd be a chess professional. Um, in 2008, when I made my debut for England at an Olympiad, it, I just, I don't know, I just fell in love with the whole environment there. I mean, what is it, 180, 190 countries coming together, playing, it's like a celebration of chess. Results are important, of course, but it's just nice to be able to catch up with friends from across the globe um, every couple of years. and. I was gutted when it didn't happen in 2020, of course, due to COVID. And uh, I think this is maybe my seventh Olympiad now, and it's always the highlight. Um, yeah, I love those events. And I only have maybe two or three kind of playing goals left in my career now, um, maybe becoming British champion a couple more times, but winning an Olympiad medal, um, board medal or team medal, that's uh, one of the last that I would love to check off the list before I retire. Any besides the two you just mentioned? or um, Getting to 2,700 again would be nice. Yeah. I, I feel like getting to 2,700 on the dock and then quitting, that would be... <laughs> <laughs> mic drop, yeah. Yeah, mic drop, exactly. Just to show I can do it again. I mean, lately, uh, yeah, I mean, I've been playing a lot less. And when I do play, it's normally when I'm super busy. And uh, yeah, I haven't been able to focus too much. So I think rating has been not the priority. Um, but... I look at my rating now and I'm a bit ashamed by it. So it would be nice to, at some point, uh, maybe if I have a prolonged break from other stuff to fully focus for a year or so and try and get it back up to where I feel I could still maybe uh, get to. Yeah, and you're around 2650 now, right? 
Yeah, dropping like a stone. <laughs> yeah, I think um, back in beginning of 2020 or end of 2019, at least I was 2710. And then uh, three months later, I was 2650. And <laughs> I've struggled to get back ever since just through lack of uh, lack of playing really. So yeah, although you did you you had that fantastic start at the FIDE Grand Swiss and uh, Igor Feinstein also had a question related to that. Uh, the fact that you we're so close. I mean, you were tied for first with two rounds to go to earn a spot to the the candidates. And it's funny because we talked in 2020 about a previous tournament where you were knocking on the door. So how do you how do you contextualize this one, David? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, we mentioned the candidates earlier, and it's it's with mixed feelings that I've watched the last two candidate cycles because the first, I mean, in 2019, I was one game away. If I won the last round, I'd been in the candidates and likewise this time if i'd won the penultimate round i'd probably be there but yeah i mean those are one-off performances uh, i'm less consistent than those top players so um i think it was just the fact that i was really enjoying the challenge of playing the top guys in the grand swiss events that brought out the best in me um i would i mean my openings i should mention were terrible at the grand swiss in 2021 last year but somehow i kept getting the results um I mean, I would just play knight f3 or move one, g3 or move two against any, everyone. And somehow <laughs> I managed to get to the joint first at some point. And I mean, even if I won my last round and I had a winning position, then I think I would have come joint second. And I mean, not just a life-changing amount of money, but also I would have been in the uh, Grand Prix series. I would have had a chance there. Actually, I think if I'd qualified from that, then Nakamura might not have got his wild card because they had one extra spot, some people that. So oh, okay. chess history always rests on these small... It really <laughs> does, yeah. Uh, small results. But uh, yeah, I mean, um, I ended up losing to Caruana and Ferruja, and I don't think I can be yeah, too bitter about that. Yeah, I was going to mention the Ferruja <laughs> game, because that was the one when you were tied for first, and obviously he's young. Um, what, like, what was how, how do you assess that game? What did you learn from it? Yeah, I mean, firstly, I think that was the game where my op lack of opening preparation really came to the fore. Um, I played a lot of quick moves in the beginning because I knew what Ferruja played. He played the quick moves too, but he just clearly played training games. He clearly studied it in more depth than I had, and he was clearly more comfortable. And uh, it got tricky. We both spent a lot of time. He thought I'd blundered, but I kind of tricked him back. And then uh, just when a draw was within my grasp, I kind of hallucinated and... Um, yeah, it was just a roller coaster game, but okay. My deficiencies aside, it showed that Ferruja still, I think, has a way to go in order to control games a bit more. Um, it's not as if he kind of completely knocked me out. Um, it was a kind of topsy turvy um, game in that one, but I did enjoy the process actually of playing it. And there was maybe one move that I was very proud of. Um, in that oh, yeah, game, that was so. Queen C6, right? Was it? Yeah, when yeah. I think I had like two seconds left on my clock, and wow, bang. <laughs> yeah. But the, the problem is, I I suddenly thought, oh my god, maybe I'm winning, and then my next move was too ambitious. So well, I was yeah. I was too proud of myself, if that makes sense. Uh, I think we've all been there. Yeah, amazing move, by the way, listeners. You should definitely uh, look for a video on on that historic game. So beyond the Olympia, David, obviously, as you've alluded to, you're quite busy with your other responsibilities. Like like the rest of us, uh, motivation can wax and wane. But do you, do you have any tournaments like firmly on your calendar? Um, other than the Olympiad, not really. Um, I was planning to play the British Championship, but it did uh, end up changing its dates quite last minute because of the Olympiad. Um, uh, so I won't be able to play that, unfortunately, this year. I think um, from December onwards, um, in a few months' time, but I'll start playing a lot more. I'll hopefully play in the London Chess Classic. 
Um, I'll try and find another tournament in January, February. Next year, I'll play the Reykjavik Open. But it's it's at the point in my life, you mentioned it's, yeah, uh, it's hard to find time, first of all. Um, but I'm going to try and start selecting tournaments that I'm just kind of ring-fencing them and not uh, getting talked out of them, not letting other commitments get in the way. Um, I think a, a lot of amateur players I talk to or um, a lot of people with full-time jobs, they have similar issues as well. Finding tournaments, sticking to them, using holiday time on them. Um, and that's what I want to do. But I want to know in advance as far as possible and I want to be able to prepare um, more if I can. So um, yeah, watch this space. That's all I can say at the moment. Uh, <laughs> I will make a comeback at some point. It's just, uh, I think because I'm too much of a, uh, perfectionist unhealthily so um i think i just want to make sure that i'm fully ready when i do uh come back to the board and that i can kind of give it a prolonged um uh prolonged stab at it well i and your fans i'm sure are glad to hear that that you will be making another push i mean and and obviously i would also understand if if you didn't like it's no, thanks. You know, and and as a um, as i mentioned i think before we were recording i mean you, your commentary along with Jovanka Hauska and Kaya Snare is, is fantastic. Um, how, how are you? In, I mean, we talked about you were doing some commentary uh, in our last interview, but obviously now it's a, you're doing it quite more frequently. They have the beautiful studio that you guys are operating from. How, how have you enjoyed this transition, David? Yeah, um, I've, I've loved every moment of it, uh, to be honest. I think when we last chatted in 2020, um, yeah, I was kind of in limbo. I wasn't really sure what I would be doing. And then this opportunity came up to come out to Norway and do a bit more commentary. And disclaimer, it is very different to maybe some of the chess commentary that's been out there in the past. And um, it's more kind of based on making chess a sport. It's all about making it fast and furious, less technical stuff. Um, we started sneaking in the coordinates of some squares and moves here and there. But in general, we try and stay away from long, complicated variations just uh, to make it easy for the viewer to follow. But uh, yeah, I love that process, and it was difficult to switch at first from the, you know, the normal chess chat, you know, knight takes c six, bishop f six, and that right. stuff. But um, yeah, I've enjoyed the process, and I, the chess scene in Norway. Um, I've ended up staying because uh, I just love it here, and everyone's so passionate about growing the game and um, kind of building chess and the image, not just within the chess world, not just chess, just for kind of established chess fans, but for the uh, for the wider public. So I'm hoping that continues to succeed and do well. But um, yeah, I've, yeah, I can't say enough. I've really <laughs> enjoyed uh, being here and fair play to the Play Magnus group. They've done a fantastic job, I think, especially during the lockdown um, to do as much as they can to keep chess on the map. Yeah. And more on the commentary in a second, but you, you mentioned that you're spending a lot of time living part-time in, in Norway now. Are you fine with speaking English? Are you picking up some Norwegian? Oh, good question. <laughs> I get asked this on a daily basis, and uh, the answer is I know shamefully little Norwegian. I know all the rude words. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, know, I know basic greetings, um, and I know how what all the chess pieces are called, of course. But uh, other than that, not enough, unfortunately, to survive yet. You don't know but, how to stay too weak, too slow in, in Norwegian yet? <laughs> no, actually, yeah, that's next on the list. Okay. <laughs> the problem is uh, I'm from England and people from England are traditionally lazy at uh, learning new languages, but also everyone in Scandinavia and Norway uh, included, they speak English perfectly, which makes uh, makes it harder maybe to learn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a luxury. Of course, us Americans struggle with, uh, with the same issue. Um, so getting back to your commentary, David, again, I, 
I think it's fantastic. As you mentioned, it, it tends to it's you you guys go out of your way to explain things to a wider audience at being broadcast on television in in Europe, of course. And but I know you've got a lot of fans. You guys were missed. I mean, obviously you popped in with uh Jan Gustafsson and Judith Polgar a few times, but the whole team wasn't covering the candidates, and I know some people missed you. So anyway, we have a Twitter question from friend of the podcast, the Ono Zone. Who asks, he said, how does someone so good at chess have the ability to explain really basic things so well to lower rated players? Did your coaching help you with this? He said he always learned so much from your commentary because of your ability or willingness to do this. Yeah, that's um, I mean, that's a very good point. It didn't come naturally at first, I must say. I mean, I again, I'm used to all the chess jargon um, that's kind of been deeply ingrained in us since we were kids, maybe as uh, when I was playing all the time. Uh, when people analyze together, kind of seasoned professionals, we kind of talk a certain way. And um, when I was kind of, when I came to Norway originally, when they kind of gave me the remit of you can say this or you should aim to present things in a certain way, um, I guess I did a lot of research and I was Googling a lot, you know, how do sports commentators prepare for their, uh, for their commentary? Um, I saw a lot of advice, for example, it's kind of say what you see is kind of in sport if you see just a simple pass you don't know you don't really need to go into too much detail to describe it then just say okay it's a simple pass and sometimes i would use that for chess uh, okay it's just a simple pawn push this is the idea but keep it basic and not over jam uh, over kind of um not going into too much detail essentially um unless it's really necessary and i think that has actually helped me with my chess as well it's broken things down um right down to the basics and um, in a way that's refreshing because I got bogged down as well in all the details or the notation or the ideas, the deep ideas behind every move. And now as part of my commentary job, I just get to enjoy the beauty of each individual move, um, each individual game without having to look for a deeper variation, without having to look for a deeper meaning behind uh, each move. So, um, yeah, I think it was just a mixture of doing the research, trying to uh, copy what some sports commentators do, but also just, remembering what chess was like in my youth trying to kind of understand the basic concepts and yeah just trying to translate that for um what is actually quite an international audience so um yeah we try and keep the language basic as well just because a lot of our viewers they are uh, english isn't their first language necessarily um so it's a mixture of things but in general i just hope that people enjoy it i've got mixed feedback but uh mostly positive so yeah i'm always looking to improve and i think as a team we're always looking to try new things so whether this is the way forward, whether going back to more typical chess language is the way forward, uh, who knows? But yeah, I think you guys are are, are filling an important role, um, and there's always going to be mixed feedback, no matter no matter no matter what. Um, so you mentioned being influenced by possibly some sportscasters. Does anyone in particular come to mind, David? Okay, um, yeah. For those who are familiar with uh, maybe English football, <laughs> um, John Motson is maybe the one that I was uh, kind of following a lot. Um, I mean, I'm a big fan of tennis because it's an individual sport, two players, just like chess. And when describing kind of the basics, I was looking at people like John McEnroe, Tim Henman. Um, even Boris Becker, a few others um, who just, I mean, I love watching Wimbledon. And I remember when I was first preparing, there was a tennis tournament on, I think it was US Open maybe. And I was listening to some of the commentary there. Um, yeah, I mean, there are other commentators who I've listened to. The names escape me at the moment. But uh, yeah, I mean, so I should say football as in soccer and then uh, some tennis. 
I was sent some basketball links to listen to as well, but uh, Interesting. I wasn't too familiar with the basketball terms, so <laughs> even that went slightly over my head. So I tried to pitch it, uh, pitch our commentary somewhere that's accessible. And uh, actually, another uh, within the chess realm, at least one person that I was, or two people that I was told to go and watch and follow, were Norwegian commentators Jon um, Ludvig Hammer, who's a very strong, yeah. famous grandmaster. He's been on Norwegian television for. Um, best part of a decade now, um, kind of casting uh, for the public who very rarely know much about chess. Um, so his is in Norwegian, but I was just trying to catch the tone, the pitch, um, the way he describes things. But also uh, Torstein Bar, who's another Norwegian commentator, and he's on maybe the the main Norwegian channel. He's always covering the biggest events, the world championships, and he just does it all on his own. He doesn't even bounce off any other commentators, oh, wow. but somehow he runs the narrative. He kind of has these great monologues and um i learned a lot from him uh, okay well. yeah i'm familiar with torsten bar's name but haven't seen him broadcast but you like ludwig hammer is great even in english so yeah exactly nice. yeah he's um, great at keeping it simple and uh dramatic always <laughs> yeah now but as a uh dyed in the wool grandmaster i mean you're trying to sort of uh as you say explain things um and clear as clearly as possible but there must be tense moments where like in a game you're covering where like there's some variation that you just your brain wants to go down the rabbit hole like yeah. <laughs> how, how do you approach it when when those situations arise uh it's it's hard um especially the format that we usually cover is rapid chess so um often there's a moment i mean myself or as you mentioned Ivanka Hauska or Simon Williams who's joined us lately they'll spot a great variation or I'll spot a really beautiful like a queen sacrifice or something that's about to happen um so we always try and bring up the board and We'll show it. Um, I, I think the tricky part that we still, uh, that's always difficult to kind of juggle is you've got to show it quickly, but also uh, in a way that's easy to understand. Often you have 20 seconds before the player makes their move, before they sacrifice the queen, you bring up the board, you show it, you say, okay, this is about to happen. It's good because of this. Will he find it? You know, it's just to make it a mystery, make it uh dramatic is maybe for example when a top soccer player has one shot on goal you know that he's about to run through um you've got 10 seconds to kind of set the scene and um we try to do it whether that's successful or not it's up to the viewers but uh yeah i mean that's been one of the hardest things uh, as you mentioned to um to kind of formulate and uh kind of <laughs> uh, really hammer home that that moment of uh, drama and it might be a complicated chess variation but we'll try to find a way at least to make it explicable. Yeah. The, the will, the will he or she find it. Those, those, that it's, moment is the best moment in, in chess. Exactly. Covering, you know? Exactly. And that's why the evaluation bar, people again have mixed feelings about whether it's shown or the computer suggestions. But I think for, especially for rapid chess, for sports kind of, uh, for the whole aesthetic, I think it's quite nice to have sometimes. Yeah. Um, well, when I interviewed Pat, Grandmaster Patrick Wolf a few years ago, he's a legend here in the U.S. Uh, he's mostly working in finance these days, but he said that he felt like the future of um, of broadcasting with chess really hinges not only on the evaluation bar, but even on like live betting, like which I know <laughs> makes some people cringe. Um, yeah. But this idea that like you know you're watching in real time, and you're even if you're not an advanced chess player, you're trying to assess like will they convert this advantage, you know? Um, and I, I think there's a grain of truth to that, whether that's certainly what's happening in the sports world, whether people like it or not, you know? Yeah. That's a cool concept, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not just trying to find the objective best move, but 
what the player is most likely to play according to their style and according to the game situation. Now that's really yeah, because it's like everyone watching has has per, almost perfect information, you know. Yeah. Whereas the, the players, even though they're world class, and obviously the the challenge of chess is conveying their thoughts to a broad audience, but like the the evaluation bar in that respect. Um, goes a long way, even though it also can lead you wrong as a player trying to improve. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the tricky part. Trust computers, but uh, to an extent. And I mean, there are other aspects that I would love to see added onto chess kind of as a spectacle, like heart rate monitors, maybe some privacy issues there, but uh, heart rate monitors, maybe eye trackers. There's, there's a whole bunch of things. Yeah. That, like uh, the the, um, the booths, I forget. The confessionals. Yeah. Booths, the confessionals. Uh, yeah. be a nice touch. Um, but the players have to use them, which you know, can, can be, a, can be a challenge. And do you have any thoughts, David? Um, you know, you and I both could be biased in in this case, but someone on Twitter was just asking about your overall thoughts of like the trajectory of chess, the potential of chess, like with what you're doing um, on the European broadcast, do you, do you feel like, like how much runway do you feel there is for growth? Yeah, that's, that's a tricky one. And I guess there are different ways to measure the growth. Um, I mean, if it's, purely on viewing figures, then yeah, it's always going to be a kind of a tricky battle, especially now the world is starting to open up again. There are so many kind of other sports, other esports um, competing uh, in the same space with chess. I mean, on Twitch, you see a whole bunch of games that uh, people are watching. And um, for chess to kind of reach the peaks it did in 2020 and uh, maybe early 21, that kind of to maintain that as well that's going to be tricky um it'll need a lot of kind of um creativity and um i'm not sure that that is necessarily the goal but just to bring chess to the i mean i think more people at least are aware of the chess world than ever before i've talked to friends in england the us uh norway new zealand even and they're more this is non-chess friends and they're suddenly aware who the world champion is they're aware that there's stuff going on in the chess world Um, that there's online matches and even if it's in their periphery vision like the chess thing then i think we're succeeding and uh that's more than can be said at least of a few years ago where it was kind of chess still had this image and uh nobody would uh, kind of read about it in the mainstream news so yeah it's it's difficult I'm, i'm optimistic um i mean there have been instances where i've been surprised how much kind of random people will know about chess and that always makes me so happy but at the same time I sometimes look at the numbers, the viewing numbers, and I'm thinking, oh, how much more can there be? You know, can we get higher? Can we? I don't know what you think, uh, Ben. What the next step is there? Yeah, uh, I mean, I I overall or... agree with with what you said. I mean, I, I've measured optimism. I would say, I mean, it's you know, if you look at chess over like a 25 year sweep with the digitalization of it, it's obviously made immense growth, um, and and. I would expect that to continue, but moderately. I, it's never going to be soccer slash football, you know, that um, it's just too cerebral a game. People people want to relax. But I do think there's there's continued uh, room for growth. And I do think continuing to experiment with formats is important. That's why I'm, uh, you know, some somewhat reluctantly not such a traditionalist when it comes to the world championship cycle. I do think there's a lot of room with uh, speed chess. Uh, I mean, the speed chess, the challenge is newer players, it's already a slow game. You you can't follow their thought process. So a, a speed game can be challenging. So may, maybe it's rapid. But 
anyway, I'm definitely optimistic, but definitely I'm, and I feel like we have a lot of good people in chess and the experimentation is good. So, um, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how things unfold in, in coming years. Yeah, I think that's the key. Chess does have an, a huge amount of people who prioritize the chess itself. So I think that's that's a start. So yeah, we'll see. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully chess continues to grow. Yes. And and of course, David, now since we last talked, you're now a chess podcaster as well. How are you enjoying <laughs> that, uh, that gig? Yeah, I've been learning from you, Ben, I must admit. Uh, <laughs> before, um, so myself and Askil Bryn, um, who I record the podcast with, before we recorded our first episode, which was a bit intimidating. It was with Magnus Carlsen. Uh, uh, I went, I think I spent probably a week every, uh, I mean, I would listen to several of your podcasts a day and uh, I checked out a few other podcasts as well. Um, of course, just to try and gauge, you know, the flow and when to jump in with the questions, how, when to kind of prompt people in certain directions. And it was tricky, I must say. Uh, and uh, I'm still learning, of course. Uh, I've been enjoying it. We've had uh, because this is part, I guess, of the Champions Chess Tour, we've had a lot of very high-profile players, which is maybe a bit different. Um, the questioning tends to end up in similar directions. I would love to branch out, maybe have more diverse uh, guests on the show in future. But uh, yeah, I've been enjoying it. Um, yeah, I've, I've been enjoying it too. And thank thank you for the compliment uh, uh, <laughs> as an aside. But yeah, the Duda interview, I'm jealous of a few of your guests, Duda being one of them. Um, he's quite personable. I felt like he was a good guest. Yeah, um, you're right. All of them. I mean, it's hard to pick a favorite. Jordan Van Furyst, Eric Hansen was um, fantastic. Just yeah. he opened up so much about mental health on our podcast. That was refreshing to hear because it's something that really doesn't get talked about enough in the chess world. Um, yeah, Lawrence Trent, always a laugh. Yeah, always uh, good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah. Hopefully, there'll be more to come. Uh, Excellent. We'll um, and what's your broadcasting schedule for for the year? Do you know what you're covering? Yeah, so um, the the Champions Chess Tour, the Meltwater Champions Chess Tour, the dates are out there online. Um, I think just a quick Google should be enough to find them. But I think we have uh, a few more events this year. We've I've got one coming up uh, just in a couple of days' time now. Um, so on the 10th of July, I'm not sure when this podcast is released, but um, the big one will be in August. This, uh, the players will all be together in Miami. So it's a bit of a hybrid tournament, not just purely online anymore. That's exciting. Um, it'll be played at uh, a really nice venue, FTX. Are you going um, to Miami or will you be in Norway? Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I'll be in uh, okay. sunny Norway. <laughs> but uh, I think, the, I mean, the players will love it. Uh, they all yeah. came to Oslo recently. It was so fun to get them together and um, it added a whole new dimension to things. So, um, so that's in Miami in August. And then I'm hoping... It's not confirmed yet, but San Francisco for the final of the tour, that will be in November. I'm hoping we get the commentators get to go to that one as well, uh, just to maybe do some on, uh, on-site interviews, on-site casting, but, uh, but we'll see. And other than that, um, I mean, other than that, I'll be playing the Olympiad, uh, maybe this chessable course with Magnus. Oh, you've got to uh, make it happen. It sounds so be good. <laughs> yeah, we've recorded most of it. So, um, yeah, I've got a few projects in the fire, but... Uh, yeah, and then I'll turn my attention back to playing. I think the commentary, I love it, but I think doing it every single day uh, would be a bit tiring. So, yeah, I, for me, it's all about the balance, and I'll try and find that this year. Yeah, I mean, and despite my love for chess, I would say it's not so much that we need more chess events. We just need to we need to pitch them properly. <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, I mean, especially some... Uh, I mean, there are so many big events every week now. It's <laughs> It's hard to keep track, but you're right. It's all about the pitching. 
Yeah. And, and we didn't, I know you weren't thrilled with your performance. Sorry to be blunt, but I, I heard you discuss it. I think it was with, with Duda, the world rapid and blitz, but how do you, how do you reflect on that tournament, both from your perspective as a player and as a spectacle? Yeah. I mean, I always love following that event. Um, the world rapid and blitz I've played it a few times, but, um, it's always over Christmas or always over new year. So, uh, sometimes I put the personal side first and, uh, spend it with family, but yeah, I went to Poland um, I met, yeah, as you say, I wasn't happy with my performance at all, but somehow I sneaked into the prizes for the world rapid section. I think I came joint around 20th, uh, which doesn't sound like much, but against all the top guys in the world, I was pretty proud of that was more due, due to a late surge rather than a great play. But, um, and then the world rapid and blitz, I just loved it. I mean, it's heartbreaking when you're doing badly and I would always play these Indian wonder kids who are. <laughs> like 1900 blitz rating but uh in classical chess they're 2650 and they would just steal all my rating points i think i played like four or five in a row uh, at some point all these kids and they were like gukesh who's 2650 2100 stealing my rating and that was frustrating but uh as a spectacle as an event it's fantastic and um, you mentioned pitching events i think if that one's marketed well that could be i agree uh, i mean that that is really unique, that event. It's all the top players in the world, so much tension, so much drama. I mean, you see the players like having a time scramble with a one-second increment. It's That's where kind of over-the-board chess, especially the speed chess, kind of comes in, uh, comes to the fore. Rapid chess, I love it. Uh, online chess, I love it. But uh, yeah, the over-the-board blitz is uh, incomparable. Uh, it's, it's also just... nice that you get some of the online personalities who might be like slightly like blitz specialists, you know, like Naroditsky or Andrew Tang. You know that that they still want Eric Hansen, like they still want to play that. You know, um, and obviously that that uh, draws interest from the fans as well. Um, yeah, actually, it's it's funny. The World Blitz this year, I finished one of my games quickly, and I was just walking around, and um, I think it was a young grandmaster from Uzbekistan. But in a time scramble, I saw him. It was similar to this Hikaru Nakamura, uh, Hikaru Nakamura, sorry, uh, story where he reached for the mouse during the candidates, even though it's an over-the-board event, right, and right. he kept reaching for the mouse instead of for the pieces. Uh, so you can, de- like you said, you uh, you can definitely sense who's uh, online blitz specialists. Uh, it was just hilarious to watch, and there was there was this uh, great video of this guy falling out of his chair after he allows a checkmate, oh, yeah, yeah. literally yeah. falling out of his chair. And uh, yeah, it's I think it's events like that that are really the future. Uh, the chess. Excellent. Um, one more, David, on the air quotes world championship. We'll see what happens. But but one one thing that I haven't covered on the podcast yet in all of our candidates' coverage is if Ding were to play Nepo, um, how would you assess that match? <laughs> yeah, um, I'd. L- I'm inclined to say maybe Nepo is a slight favorite just because. Uh, I mean, this is not due to objective chess strength. I think Ding is maybe slightly better there, slightly more consistent in general. But Nepo, he's just doing everything right. He's got this great team around him. He seems really calm at a good stage in his life. He's clearly physically training more than ever. His openings are all sorted. He's got opening ideas, uh, fresh ideas. Ding, he seems to be working mostly alone. I mean, obviously, he's got some people helping him, but he traveled to Madrid alone on the eve of the tournament, jet-lagged. I guess uh, the situation in China is difficult. Um, so many things that are kind of facing Ding there that he'd have to overcome. And I think unless he can prove that he's going to sacrifice everything and 
um, kind of build this huge team and have people there to keep him company, keep him in a good mood. I think somehow Nepo is just, at this point in time at least, he's uh, the more rounded player and he's got the bigger support net or the better support network around him. So I would say Nepo right now, but I'm Ding's biggest fan. So I would like to think that if Ding got the World Championship uh, opportunity that he'd uh, maybe yeah, be able to put all those stones in place to properly compete. Yeah, that makes sense. I found it interesting in one of Nepo's post-game interviews, I think it was Robert Hess asked him, what you know, what's special about the candidates? Like, why are you performing so much better there? And Nepo was basically like, well, well I try harder. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> I, I take it seriously, unlike some of the other tournaments. And yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about that. But we as fans think about how many tournaments there are, but you forget for the players too, that motivation is not like always going to be at the same level. Yeah, it's about picking the picking the right tournaments. I mean, they can't play everything. <laughs> As yeah. you say, there's too many tournaments now. Um, but also, players like Nepo, who are super focused on the candidates, they might spend other tournaments kind of feeding their opponent, their future opponents, false information, playing different openings. Um, but when the candidates come, that's the one they play all their best stuff. They save all the gems, uh, all the opening surprises for. So. Um, yeah, and he said he goes to bed when he should. He doesn't play video games. Like, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's the same, I mean, on a lower level, but it's the same for me with the Grand Swiss. That's why maybe I've played well twice at the Grand Swiss in the last couple of years, but I play worse at other tournaments because I try and do the right things, whereas uh, I give in to temptation and uh, right. <laughs> go along with the distractions at the other tournaments, maybe. Well, that's good, David, because we're we're all fans of yours, and you've been close twice, and we, we want to see you do it. So, I mean, it's it's the it's good that that's an additional reason to believe that, like, you know, you've been so close twice that things break slightly differently next time. Boom, you won't be available to broadcast. <laughs> uh, thanks, Ben. Uh, <laughs> uh, I yeah, I hope to do your uh, faith uh, justice someday. Excellent. Well, that's probably a good note to end on, David. Thanks so much. You know, ton, tons of great insights about, uh, you know, obviously the gamut from your career to uh, to the World Championship. Any uh, closing thoughts? Um, not really. I mean, uh, it's just a pleasure chatting to you. Um, I mean, it's been two years now. It feels like so much has changed in, really in my life. Yeah. Chess world, I'm sure, um, for you as well. And uh, yeah, let's do this again sometime. That's all yeah. I can think. I'd love to. Well, thank you, David. And I think listeners know where to find David. Uh, tune into the Chess24 broadcast and you can follow him on Twitter. I know you say your social media game is weak, but you've got a lot of followers. Is there anywhere else people should be following you, David? Uh, Twitter and Instagram. Those are the two places. Okay. I don't even know. My Instagram game is terrible, so I don't even know if I follow you there. <laughs> we'll have to check that out. But anyway, thanks again, David. Much appreciated as always. Okay. Cheers, Ben. Cheers, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Beneficial1 on Twitter, at Perpetual Chess on Instagram, and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, ben at perpetualchesspod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show, going over chess games, answering questions, stuff like that. And you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference. So, But most of all, thanks to everyone for listening, and we will catch you all on the next episode. 
Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.